Hello, and welcome back to They Made Another One, where each week we discuss oft-forgotten installments in a franchise and see if you should check it out all for yourself. I'm one of your hosts, Mitch, and with me, I've got Liam. In the words of Max Caddy. Oh, sorry, it's pronounced Katie. I learned that in prison. You like? White trash piece of shit. And uh, Corey's not here, so he can't really mm-hmm. do his quote. But uh, I'm going to do, well, pardon me all over the place, which is uh, by Robert Mitchum as the police lieutenant. That's a good one. Let's let's do one for Corey. Let's, uh, if Corey was here, I bet he'd say, uh, geez, I don't know whether to look at him or read him. I think Corey might say, King Solomon could not have adjudicated better, Your Honor. Damn, that's a good one, too. If, if Corey ever watches this movie, we'll ask him what he would have picked. If he ever does. I mean, we'll we're about to catch to, up with him. He's going to edit this thing and we're going to spoil the whole fucking thing. So what's the point? But that's you know. right, Corey. You got to watch this movie before you hear these words. It, Corey, this, this is a spoiler warning to you, the listeners, I suppose, as well, but mostly to you. If you haven't seen Cape Fear 1991 before editing and or listening to this podcast, um, think about what you're about to do with your life. Just, just think, think about it. If just it's think. Um, so, Liam, Cape mm-hmm. Fear. Um, does it has it loomed large in your subconscious, like before seeing this movie? You know what? It has loomed large in my subconscious, Mitch. Uh, if you're tapping into the idea that I haven't seen this movie, you're absolutely right. And uh, it has been on my watch list, I'd say probably maybe since early university. It's it's not, it hasn't loomed my entire life the way some of these movies have. Mm-hmm. And it's not, it's not like uh, some of the other movies by this director, like um, Goodfellas or... Um, taxi driver where i had heard about them all my life you know it's uh cape fear um in my understanding is a bit is a bit more low-key for him and so i don't even remember how i heard about the title um and so going into this movie i i knew very little about it except that i i wanted to watch it because i knew the title i knew the poster for sure I knew the director, Martin Scorsese, and I knew Robert De Niro starred in it, but I had no idea about the plot, and uh, that's why I'm kind of confused as to how I heard about this movie, because to be frank, I don't really care about Martin Scorsese all that much. I don't mean that in a disparaging way. Um, I like all the movies of his I've seen. My favorite is The King of Comedy. That Mm. movie is so good. Um, But I... I'm not attached to him uh, the way I am some other directors where like if his name is on a movie that makes me want to watch it. I came to this movie and put it on my watch list for whatever reason distinct from Martin Scorsese. Uh, So I don't know why I put it on my list. I think it's just like the poster looks like a thriller movie. It looks kind of creepy and um Cape Fear is a creepy title, and I think that was enough for me. It's from the 90s, so it's like not too out of my wheelhouse, right? Like if I see a movie from like the 70s, the 60s, that's a psychological thriller. I got to admit to myself that sometimes it makes me a bit more hesitant. But 1991, the era of 
grunge music and uh, Jenkos, I can totally watch that. So I have had this movie on my watch list. I was very excited to hear that you picked it. Um, but hell, I didn't even know that this was a contender for the podcast until you let me know. I had no idea that this movie was a remake. And I don't know if that is a testament to this movie not being talked about all that much and so it's not like one of those common oh did you know that that movie is a remake or if it's just a testament to me knowing very little about cape fear in either direction and it might be that because Corey did mention last week when you picked this movie um that the only cape fear he knew was the one from the 60s he didn't even know there was one from the 90s uh he had never heard of, of the one we're talking about, whereas I'm the complete opposite. I thought that the one from the 90s, um, despite not being talked about all that much, like I was pretty sure that it was a big movie at the time. I just it hasn't been brought up as much as something like Goodfellas. But um, I by no means thought it was a uh, underseen movie. I, I assumed it was it was pretty huge at the time, which is which is why mm-hmm. I know about it. So I was I was just stoked to see it, whatever it was. Right. I mean, it's it's interesting because the the one from the 60s, it's from 1962, uh, fell, I don't want to say it fell into obscurity, um, but it it received sort of cautious notices from, from critics. It was a bit edgy for the time, um, but not like overly edgy because it came from 1962. So the studio era was still uh, looming large, um, but it's received a bit more attention lately. It had a resurgence in the 90s when the remake came out, obviously. But uh, there was recently a Robert Mitchum collection on the Criterion channel, and this is one of them. And Mitchum is one of the stars in the original movie. He plays Max Cady, and he's back in, in this movie as well. And Gregory Peck is one of the other stars, and he's back in this as, as uh, the lawyer that I just quoted. And uh, Martin Balsam's back too. So like a bunch of the original cast are back and they actually kept the original soundtrack by Bernard Herrmann uh, for this remake, which we can talk oh, about. Um, dang, that makes, but, that makes sense. Yeah. I, I didn't know that, but yeah. Um, but this movie for me, I, I've seen the one from the 90s like a lot. I'm a fan of Martin Scorsese. I, I, I definitely love, um, I love his gangster movies. I, I, I I'm a big fan of, of of most of his movies for sure, um, and this is this is one of them that I really like. Um, so that's that's why I picked it. Uh, but so have you have you seen the '60s one? Oh yes, yes I have, and we can we can talk about like some of the differences between the two as we as we kind of go through it. Um, Do you know which one you saw first? I saw the '90s version first. And um, did you know it was a remake at the time? I did. Yeah. I actually, I don't know if I knew it was a remake going into it, but I knew, like, I, I found out pretty shortly thereafter I read about it because I was like, holy shit, Robert Mitchum's in this movie. And then um, I found out that, like, uh, it's a pretty, like, faithful remake, but it does a lot of things differently. The one from the 60s is comparatively a lot more, like, sterile and there's less um, moral ambiguity. Um, but... Uh, yeah, it's still like a worthwhile film. It's by J. Lee Thompson, who I'm not crazy about as a director. 
uh he made like the guns of the navarone and like it's like a bunch of movies with charles bronson and kind of like a whole bunch of stinkers like i don't know if there's any real movies in this filmography that i can point at and say that i love like i don't love the original cape fear there's things i like about it um but this movie is the cape fear for me absolutely all the way got you okay yeah i'm just based on what I assume the basic plot is that's carried over from one movie to the other, I, I am interested to see the 60s one and see how they handle it, particularly within the culture of the 60s and what was like appropriate to talk about explicitly. Yeah. And Because this, this movie does some pretty explicit stuff that I imagine was more subtle in the 60s one, and so that has me more interested in it. But um, as of now... The 90s one is the Cape Fear for me because, uh, one, it's the only one I've seen. And and two, I have to remind myself that it's a remake because that first one, the knowledge of it existing is still so new to me. Whereas this one, um, I think of Cape Fear and I think of that poster right away. And funny enough, the poster um, actually makes me think of the movie Shutter Island for some reason. And, which is also Marty. <laughs> which is, yeah, mind-blowing. I didn't even make that connection. So when I started watching this movie, Cape Fear, um, maybe halfway through, I thought, oh, this is not the movie I thought it was going to be based on the poster. I thought this was going to be like a Shutter Island type movie. And I didn't even make the connection until after I watched the movie and like later that night where I was like, wait a second, Martin Scorsese directed Shutter Island as well. That's very mm. interesting. But yeah. Yeah, um, I should I should say I don't know if I said this already, but uh, technically, like these are an adaptation of a book called The Executioners, which is from the late fifties by an author named John D. Macdonald. I have not read the book, but uh, worth noting that uh, maybe one day I'll like track it down. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so. Should I get into the cast and the crew, perhaps? I would love to hear it. you got to regale me, Mitch. I'm sure you've got some tales about these people. <laughs> I sure do. So I'm going to start with the cast uh, starring Robert De Niro. I don't think I need to say what he's been in because he's he has been around. Say uh, it for us, Corey. That's right. He needs no introduction. That's all right. Yeah. The guy needs no introduction. And then it has um, Nick Nolte. Oh, sorry. Some... Uh, I should say who De Niro plays. He plays Max Cady. Um, then you have the, Nick... N the bad N guy. The bad guy. The bad guy. Uh, Nick Nolte plays Sam Bowden. Nick Nolte um, kind of made his bones in the 70s. He's in a, like the, uh, the movie The Deep. Uh, he's also in uh, The Thin Red Line, like that World War II movie by Terrence Malick. Um, he's in a few movies by like Sidney Lumet. Yeah, he, he got The, the Player, uh, which is uh, a, a fun one by uh by robert altman uh and then we have jessica lang as lee bowden and jessica lang is like one of my favorite um one of my favorite actors i think she's she's wonderful and all that jazz and if i don't know if you've seen american horror story but she's good through in seasons one through four. Oh, that's cool that she's in it no i haven't that's really cool yeah and she's in i think it's the feud like it's a new movie yeah she's she's still like getting around and she's she's wonderful you have juliette lewis as danielle bowden um, I know her best from Natural Born Killers, mm -hmm. and um, and that would have just been a few years after this movie, which is yeah. wild. Totally different characters. Yeah, and from Dust Till Dawn, uh, she's in Gilbert Grape. 
Yeah. yeah, yeah, she's she's probably the only familiar face in this movie to me besides Robert De Niro, um, who I've you know seen in Taxi Driver and Meet the Parents and stuff. And Meet the Parents was only like a decade after this movie, which is absolutely wild. But mm-hmm. uh, um, Juliette Lewis, I, I do recognize probably because she's a younger actress. Like in this movie, I think she was seventeen or eighteen when she shot it, and so she's been in much more movies that I've seen. She's in uh, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. She plays chevy chase's daughter so i had a crush on her when i was a kid <laughs> she's in a movie from just a couple years ago a horror movie called ma where she plays a a mom of a teen who uh gets into some horror trouble she's good in that and she's also in um uh, this really cool road movie from 1993 that I would recommend to people. I think this is pretty underseen. It's called California, but with a K in place of the C. And it has Brad Pitt, Juliette Lewis, and David Duchovny. And it's like a road movie. David Duchovny uh, is is driving across the country to like research serial killers and i think um juliette lewis and brad pitt are hitchhiking together and he picks them up and learns that they are uh totally wacko killers it's sort of like a the hitcher situation and juliette lewis plays a really interesting character in that movie that's a very cool one interesting that sounds like a really cool premise i should check that out yeah i fired that one just because of the premise i think like five years ago i was just researching road movies and that one came out i'd never heard of it and i've really never heard anyone talk about it since i mean it says here it was 8.5 million budget and it made 2.4 million so it didn't gross a whole lot and despite having these stars in it uh, it doesn't really get talked about so i'd, I'd recommend that one for show mm-hmm uh, then we have uh, Joe Don Baker, who is a favorite of mine as uh, the private the private eye Kursig. Um He made a reputation for playing tough guys in the seventies, um, and he appeared in like a bit of TV. He did. Uh, he was in a, the James Bond movie The Living Daylights with Timothy Dalton. Uh, he was also in uh, Goldeneye as well. Um. He, but in the 70s, he was in films like The Outfit, uh, Charlie Varick, and a film called Mitchell, which is <laughs> funny there to me. There you go. Because what I, so I just started a new job and like one of my coworkers, like on like my, I don't know, like my fourth day, just like out of, out of pocket, just like sent me this YouTube link to the trailer for Mitchell, which is like this, you should watch the trailer. It's hilarious. Um, it was kind of a cool thing to do. I think I saw it once, like really late at night when I was zooted, but I'm a huge fan of Joe Don Baker, great character actor who just has like a tendency to show up in like the best places. That's um, cool. I, I got to tell you something, Mitch, your, your Mitchell movie. I've got a similar one. There was a movie. It probably came out in like the late nineties or early 2000s or something and it's just called Liam and my mom bought it on VHS tape I guess because she just saw it in the store around that time when VHS tapes were in stores and uh, no one none of us know what it is none of us ever watched it and it is just sat on on the shelf (laughs) with our VHS collection for the last 22 years and it's still there right now never been moved and it just says Liam on the spine and so every time I see it I think oh yeah my mom bought that for me when I was like six and i remember her telling me look i this movie it's titled after your name so i got it and sometime we can watch it and i've never, never watched it i have no idea what it's about you're still waiting <laughs> yeah uh, that's gonna be the last <laughs> movie i watch before i die yeah and then next up on the cast and crew docket is robert mitchum 
Um, one of my favorite actors. I keep saying that because this movie has like a lot of actors that I really like. Uh, but Robert Mitchum is one of those celebrities. Like we talk about like Brando stories in some of our episodes where you read about like things that they've done and the, like the, mm. the mystique surrounding them. And Robert Mitchum is one of those guys who kind of like lazily plays his roles with an immense sense of like danger and power. And he's, he's extraordinary in the night of the hunter. I think the year it came out is it came out in the fifties. I'm not sure the exact year, but it's the only movie Charles Lawton never directed. And he plays like a, a preacher with uh, love and hate tattooed on, on his, uh, fingers and so that's like where that comes from if you've ever seen that sort of reference i mean spike lee references it and for sure yeah yeah so he is he is tremendous he's in ryan's daughter david lean he got around he's in a bunch of the rko b movies from like the 40s and 50s one of my favorites is his kind of woman that he's in uh that's what it's called and the if you ever want to read about like insane onset antics, because that movie took over a year to shoot. It, it was produced by Howard Hughes, who was the richest man in the world who had just bought RKO. Mm-hmm. And um, Hughes was seen as a bit of an eccentric in his day. Uh, um, Martin Scorsese actually made a movie about him called The Aviator um, a couple of years after this in the early 2000s um, with, with DiCaprio. Um, but Hughes was an eccentric and he, it's thought now that he probably had OCD. Um, and so it took over a year to shoot his kind of move, uh, his kind of woman and to celebrate the one year anniversary, uh, Robert Mitchum got drunk and got in a fist fight on the set because he was just furious and fuming with the fact that he had to like stay here and do this. He hated Howard Hughes and, uh, working for RKO, <laughs> But uh, yeah, he's got just like legendary stories about like his his bouts of drinking and getting in fights. He was kind of one of the original tough guys. Um, and I'm, I'm an enormous fan of his work. Cool. You have Gregory Peck, um, who was in To Kill a Mockingbird in 1960, which came out two years before Cape Fear. He plays a Southern lawyer in both films. Um, dramatically different movies, though. Uh, he's also in... Uh, the Big Country by William Wyler, one of my favorite westerns. Uh, you have Elena Douglas as uh, Laurie Davis in this movie. I'm less familiar with her work. Um, I'm trying to think where I've seen her. Um, I don't know. She did a lot of stuff on like on TV. I've seen her in like an episode of like Seinfeld and like Frasier and like guest appearances. Um, but she's still working today. Um, boxcar children she's in yeah i don't know are you familiar with her work liam no i've I've never heard of her um i guess i've seen her in seinfeld and frazier um but i couldn't tell you who she is but elena douglas is is laurie davis in this um tragic character i don't know yeah um and then i'm you got martin balsam as the as the judge who was also in the original movie and i'm gonna cap it at that with the cast Heading over to The Crew now, directed by Martin Scorsese, screenplay, who needs no introduction. Um, Screenplay by Wesley Strick, who uh, did Batman Returns. uh, He was a producer for The Man in the High Castle. Um, Cinematography by Freddie Francis, who I think is really a wonderful cinematographer. And he's done some of my favorite movies. He worked quite a bit with David Lynch. He did The Elephant Man, and he also shot the original Dune. Uh, he did return to Oz, um, the straight story as well by David Lynch. That was his final film, actually. Um, he also worked a lot with Jack Cardiff when Cardiff took up directing, and Cardiff is one of my other favorite cinematographers as well. 
Uh, he shot The Innocence from 1961, which is an amazing gothic horror movie. Have you seen it? No, no, I've never <gasps> even heard of it, I don't think. You've got to see it. It's with Deborah Kerr and uh, Michael Redgrave, and the screenplay is by Truman Capote, directed by Jack Clayton. Um, it's based off the turning of the, or the, what, what the hell is it based off of? Uh, yeah, The Turn of the Shrew. Um, I have read that. Yeah, the famous sort of ghost story. Anyway. Yeah. Um, edited by Martin Scorsese's longtime collaborator, uh, Thelma Schoonmacher, who's directed like pretty much all of his movies, or not directed, has edited all of his movies, uh, mostly. Like, um, I think she started with Who's That Knocking at My Door in 67, and she did Raging Bull. Longtime collaborator, she was married to Michael Powell, who uh, worked extensively with Jack Cardiff, who I just mentioned, uh, making a bunch of great movies in like the 40s and 50s, um, like A Matter of Life and Death or The Red Shoes or Black Narcissus. Um, so, so she, yeah, Thomas Schumacher married to her. The music is by Bernard Herrmann, um, who is one of the goats. He did this, the score for Taxi Driver. And in fact, it was his last score. He died, I think, a day before that movie came out or something. It was very close to the release. Oh, no. Um, but Bernard Herrmann uh, did a bunch of the soundtracks for Hitchcock. He did it for Citizen Kane. Um, yeah, he's just an incredible... Uh, composer. He did the, the soundtrack for Obsession by Brian De Palma. I think Psycho was him. I'm not sure. Yeah, he did it for Psycho. Um, so he's getting a, a posthumous, uh, posthumous. How do you say that? Posthumous. Word? Posthumous. He's getting a he's getting a posthumous credit here. Yeah, he would have died like 20 years before this. Um, but he did like a whole bunch of Hitchcock's movies, like Marnie and Torn Curtain and Vertigo. Um, yeah, just a, a, a prolific composer. He did uh, The Magnificent Ambersons as well with um, Orson Welles. So uh, just a prolific composer uh, from the 20th century. And I think uh, Bernard Herrmann ad- adapted, or sorry, not Bernard Herrmann, Elmwood Bernstein adapted the uh, screenplay a, a bit for this. I'm, I'm not sure what role he, he played in that. Um, it was produced by Barbara DeFinna. I, I've never. I'm not a name. I'm not really familiar with. Um, but she produced The Color of Money, uh, The Age of Innocence, Casino. So I guess most of Marty's movies. Um, but I, I'm, I'm not really familiar with her that much or what her her bag is. So yeah, um, I'm gonna leave that there with the crew, if that's cool. <laughs> yeah, that sounds great. It's it's wild that we've talked about some of these people and their work before, because of course we did the color of money, and so we've seen this editor at work, and we've seen we've seen Barbara's production shops, we've seen Marty's uh, directorial skills, and and we all quite loved that color of money movie. So I'm curious to see if he uh, manages to bat two for two here. <laughs> yeah, we shall see. Um, so. Do are we crossing that bridge where I ask you what you think of the movie? Do you want to tell me what you th- what, like like first impressions, or do you want to like like I don't know, let the cat yeah. out of the bag? What do you yeah. think? I, I want to tell you if you want to ask me. Okay, there, I'm gonna ask. I'm gonna ask. Want to know? All right. What what the hell? Corey's gone. When the cat is gone, the mice will play. You know what I mean? <laughs> okay. Let's play a little mouse. <laughs> so, what did you think? I. I'm trying to think of how to not 
how to not just say something boring at the beginning. You're like trying I to let me down do gently or what? About how I like it or how I don't like it or, or whatever it is. Okay. I, uh, I was surprised at what type of movie this is. And mm. the type of movie it is, is a type I really love. And so I was very excited when I realized the kind of movie it is. Um, and by the conclusion... I was a bit let down that hmm. that's all the movie was. So you, you thought that it lived in some sort of like prestige mystique and you were expecting more? Like what, what, what were you expecting? I was expecting something not so... Um, what I felt was, if not derivative, then uh. it's just that it must have inspired movies of a similar type that now make this movie feel derivative, but Mm. it felt much more straightforward than I was expecting in terms of, uh, in terms of plotting, even in terms of filmmaking, there are some really cool shots here, but I thought that it was a lot of the time pretty by the numbers and the things that are making it stand out are, uh, the performances, Mm. Um, for sure. And, and again, there's some really cool camera choices here, but um, I, I found that pretty much the, the entire way through, I think that it is, it is mostly an actor's movie and, and perhaps that is the intent. Um, mm. And so I think if it's an actor's movie, the acting is great. I know some Oscars were given up here, uh, at least some nominations. I know Juliette Lewis was nominated, if, if not winning her award for Best Supporting yeah. Actress. De Niro and was nommed too, yeah. There you go. So I can't argue with that. Um, and I think just by the end, I was let down not not i i want to say not because of the names attached to it i don't want to i don't want to put that on the movie especially because like i said i'm not even that familiar with martin scorsese i've probably seen five or so of his movies um so i don't even have a style of his that i'm anticipating and and even then the style that i would ascribe to him based on the movies i've seen is is a pretty um realistic uh style that that services the uh story that's being told and i think he does that here but because the story that's being told is um a bit i think a bit slight and what is there to chew on the main crux that's there to chew on which i'm sure we'll talk a lot about um is like the 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 moral dilemma this this uh idea of like moral and legal justice and revenge Mm -hmm. and stuff i think that is interesting but i think because that's basically what the movie ends up hanging its hat on entirely I would have liked of that for that to have either been underscored even further or tweaked to be a more interesting dilemma. I think it's the 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 question that's being asked um, and what plays out in this movie because of the questioning um, is actually not all that captivating to me. I think it is pretty. Um, pretty straightforward and so i ended up being a bit let down but 
I wasn't let down because of the movie I thought it would be going in. I was let actually let down because I loved the first half of the movie and where it could go. And it ended up going where a lot of these movies I love go. And so yeah. um, it might sound like I didn't like this movie. And that's that's not true at all. This movie is at the very least um, for me like a 7 out of 10. Right. And... Um, I just think that it didn't have the extra meat that I would have loved for the movie to have by the end. Like even a a lot of, and it always comes back to this for me, but like a lot of the horror movies I love when they're knocking out of the park in the first half, a lot of times it's that second half that really hits and like makes it one of my favorite movies. It has something at the end where I'm like, oh man, that that brought it all the way up there. But this movie, I found that the most interesting stuff was in the first half, whereas the second half was fairly standard revenge fare. And I love revenge movies. I love movies where like someone with a vendetta from the past has come and is going to ruin a family man's life. Like those Mm. are, those are actually pretty common movies. It's a very pulpy idea. It's sort of like, you might see it on like the Lifetime channel or something, but I, yeah. I, I really like that idea. And so um, I do like the movie, but it wasn't a home run for me. I've babbled long enough, Mitch. I want to hear what you think and then we'll hash it all out. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you on a lot of points. Um, it is fairly by the numbers thriller, a bit conventional, um, but if you compare it to the original, it's doing way more. Um, I know that that's not necessarily um, necessarily like a, a valid uh, point of, of, of criticism or, or merit when you compare it to you know that, but but, but it definitely uh, gives it reason to exist. You know, oh, reason certainly. to be a remake for sure. Certainly, yeah. Um, little note on Martin Scorsese: like before he became a director, he wanted to be a priest. Um, and wow. I think that this movie is dripping with um, like religious allegory and Catholic guilt, and and uh, you know, um, Cain versus Abel, and and uh, ideas about like about um, sin and morality, like inter intertwined in that, and and uh, you know justice outside the confines of the legal system um so there's there's more going on i think like in in religious allegory and i i think this film is kind of uh dripping with that and that's sort of also like religious myth in the characters and the, and the bravado you kind of see um de niro's character is almost like the personification of of the devil he's like this out of the past character who who comes out and starts wreaking havoc. So I love all that. I love the camera work. I love the editing in this movie. I think it's like incredibly well edited, incredibly well acted. But I agree. I think I I don't like the direction it takes in the last act, but I do like the religious allegory at work in the, in the in the last act. I think it's the strongest there and you you have De Niro quoting like a, a 17th century uh priest uh and there's there's lots of sort of illusions. I I grew up um, with like a good Catholic education. I'm not practicing now, but I know enough from that to sort of appreciate a lot of those things or sort of notice it with that that Sunday school experience under my belt. Um, so yeah, there's 
there's a lot that I really, really like in this movie, um, but I agree. I think it it falls apart in the last act. I'm just reading that we've done. I'm not. I'm just not reading. I'm just noticing that we've done our listeners a disservice by not going through the plot. Um, so I think I'm just gonna like rip through that really quickly in a few sentences, and uh, then, we, then we can get into it. And and make sure you don't leave out the part where uh, Max Katie clings onto the underside of a car like a gremlin. I love that. I love that old cliche. It never, it always works. <laughs> he comes um, out all dirty. <laughs> already read him. Yeah. But, um, so Nick Nolte's character, uh, Sam Bowden puts Max Katie away in the seventies cause he's accused of raping a 16 year old girl. And, um, Bowden doesn't really protect Katie as well as he should. Cause he, he makes like a, a moral decision about his client and doesn't fulfill his responsibility as a lawyer. He knows this guy's kind of trash. So he, he doesn't adequately and zealously defend his client. He sends him to jail 15 or 14 years later. Uh, he's got a family, a, a wife, a, a not so stable marriage and, uh, you know, a past history of infidelity. And, uh, Katie comes back and he's looking for revenge. He's looking for, uh, him to answer for why he didn't fulfill his responsibility as a lawyer. And before he was put away, he was completely illiterate. But when he was in the can, he uh, honed his reading chops and uh, learned sort of the the legal malfeasance or whatever you want to call it that um, Nick Nolte's character practiced. And so he comes back and he's ready for blood and he fucks shit up. And most of the movie, or at least in the earlier half, is sort of this episodic, these events growing in intensity of, of Katie sort of following this family. And uh, he follows them to a movie theater, then to a parade. And the the confrontations become increasingly more intense and more disturbing and uh, also like imbued with like a sexually perverse, predatory sort of aspect as well as he, as he gets closer to this family. And uh, they want to protect their daughter and keep her ignorant of his crimes, but they it doesn't really become possible because he's dedicated and they hire a private eye and blah, 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 blah. And, um, you know, it takes the conventional thriller route with a big showdown in the end. I think that that's a fair description. That's right. Yeah. And the family lives and the bad guy dies. Yes. Although that doesn't happen in the original. What happens in the original? He gets arrested. Oh, okay. I guess that kind of goes, goes to show what we were touching on that, that, in the nineties, you know, you're able to be a bit more explicit and maybe a bit more dark with these things and certainly and not as, uh, outwardly, uh, mm. moral or at least posturing as moral. Although like in the, in the sixties film, they still definitely keep like the scenes with, with, um, like sexual assault. A lot of the physical violence happens off screen, but, um, it's, there's still like, um, like that in the movie and it's, and it's um, pretty heavy, but it's, it's like, it's much more visceral in the nineties movie and the violence is, is front and center. So um, yeah. Should we, should we start perhaps with performances? Should we go to performances? I feel like that's. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm totally down for performances. Um, You got, do you have any favorites standouts um, in the movie? Oh, absolutely. Um, honestly, I kind of love everyone here. I think uh, Jessica Lange is great and just sophisticated and uh, snappy. Uh, Nick Nolte plays a pretty good like piece of shit. Um, and I, I like that I like that 
there is that sort of duality there. Like he's not the morally upstanding character that Gregory Peck is in like the, you know, the white sort of <laughs> bread character that Gregory Peck is in the original. He's, he's got some skeletons in his closet and they're coming out and ready to get him. Um, so, so in the original, that character it has not cheated on his wife, but no. he has hid the detail about um, the, the court case. Is that what it I, is? I think, I think he definitely like, like does a little bit of like sneaky sneaky there but i don't i don't really recall i can't remember like the exact details it's been a few years um got you okay but it doesn't it doesn't have like the infidelity angle or or anything like that which is i think one of the most tragic angles of the movie with um like the the character that um elena douglas is playing as um like the office clerk that he's sort of seeing and playing squash with and he's like oh my wife doesn't even know you exist um and sort of like a tragic character um yeah and i I think it plays into the um there some of the religious themes in the movie um you know when you when you marry someone um in uh my my understanding is is that in you know like christian and 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 catholic religions when you marry someone it's it's very paramount that you are following the uh the standard orders that are that are read out at the marriage you know that you're going to be with your wife till yeah. death you part and with with no one else and so well, the commandments they shall not right. commit adultery yeah. right and so him doing that and and i didn't pick up if they said that he had done it previously, that he had cheated on his wife, he has. said that he had he history. He did. They talk about like how they went to a couple's therapy and he's like, why did you bother? She's Jessica Lang starts shouting at him like over okay. and over again. Interesting. That's, yeah. that's really cool. Um, I, I found it cool how it didn't seem like he was in a physical relationship with um, the Laurie character. It was more, he's, he's emotionally cheating yeah, on I his don't, wife. I don't think he is in a physical relationship with her as well. They're, they're sort of flirting and emotionally and I feel you're like yeah it's not uh it's not uh like that yeah yeah and i think that's that's more interesting um even now that you've told me that he had cheated on his wife physically in the past because it's like he's sort of righted himself and now he's on the surface being this upstanding guy and and one could say that he's he's not cheating on his wife it's sort of the uh, another moral dilemma in the movie beyond the legality of the stuff with max you know this Mm. idea that is is he a good guy is he doing the right thing all he's doing is he has a friend who he's just playing squash with and you don't have to tell your wife about all your friends right but mm. in this case maybe you do because uh clearly Lori is interested in him um he very well might be interested in her and so there is something morally ambiguous happening mm. and so even though he has um fixed himself to be more of a good guy on paper um a figure like max coming into his life who is now a highly religious man um based on all the readings he's done and with all these prison tattoos that have Bible quotes on them and a big cross on this back. Now he's going to see um, uh, the Nick Nolte character as deserving of the punishment he's getting in more ways than one, not just because he, he hid these court documents, but also because he is cheating on his wife. That's how, that's how um, Max's character sees it. And so I think that that is a really interesting wrinkle to the movie that i had not actually thought about in fact all the religious stuff i didn't give a whole lot of 
thought about. I, I appreciated that it was in there. Um, and I, I recognize that it, it must have a lot of weight now now that you say that mm. martin scorsese was going to be a priest that makes a lot of sense right he made the last temptation of christ but i, yeah. I didn't even i didn't know that and so um i didn't grow up with any religious upbringing and so a lot of that stuff whenever it's in movies it goes over my head but the religion stuff in movies is is so common in, in all genres of movies um you lace this stuff in because so many people have that upbringing and so it, it adds so much weight and uh, so much to, to chew on, but it sort of goes over my head because like even horror movies about possession and stuff mm. all about like, you know, the idea that demons can take over your body or you can, you can go to hell. That stuff doesn't really scare me because I didn't have those formative years where I believed that something like that was yeah. true um but I mean, I, i'm i'm loving hearing it from you that that stuff really resonated yeah. with you I in mean, this movie even as a catholic like i don't consider myself a catholic but i guess i was baptized so i'm one for life but um, i was baptized I'm, i gotta like, admit that like like with that with that sort of upbringing um i always thought, sort of thought that like exorcisms and demons and all that were really far out but this is just a, like an interesting aside the community that i grew up in the priest who served there was the only legally certified member of the Roman Catholic Church that was allowed to perform exorcisms in Canada. Um, wow. Yeah, and he, he performed a few in sub-Saharan Africa, I think, um, when he was a missionary. I tried to interview him when I was like a young young reporter, but you know, yeah. you know how the church is with reporters. Um, yeah. <laughs> anyway, that's just a fun aside. But, but um, that is. yeah, the religious allegory... Uh, is looms large in the in the performances in this movie um yeah get, get back to talking about your performances you were you were on it you talked about how uh nick nolte played a good piece of shit and he you plays a great piece Lang. of shit jessica lang sophisticated joe don baker i love the like the subtlety with his character how he plays like this sort of hulking southern private eye who's a bit of a tough guy Heavy set fella who drinks a mixture of Jim Beam and Pepto Bismol, which yes sounds a there's a word for that. I can't remember what the name of the drink is. It's actually like a really? real it's a real cocktail. Let me look it up. Oh my uh, gosh! I don't know if I want you to make me one of those, Mitch. No, it probably gives you like wild diarrhea, or maybe who knows? Because I don't know if the whiskey <laughs> counters out. Uh, it's called a Pepto Bismopolitan. There you go. Wow. Maybe, oh. maybe maybe we'll age into it. Maybe one day we'll want that. I can't imagine he's doing it for the taste. Yeah, pretty gross. But yeah, his character is great. I love the scenes of him sort of surveying people. And this movie has just like growing intensity and people watching. And there's an element of sort of like voyeurism and danger. It feels very Hitchcockian in that sort of style. And it has that sort of um, uh, starkness. I feel like it also takes a um, like a card out of De Palma as well. Um, I love Robert Mitchum. I think he's perfectly cast in this movie. Um, in that sort of one scene, I don't know whether to look at him or read him. And then he's like, well, I wouldn't tell you as an upstanding member of the law to take the law into your own hands. You must have under misunderstood me. Well, pardon me all over the place. Like he's, he is exquisite in this Gregory Peck short role, but I love to see him in here. Um, yeah, just wonderful performances. Performance-heavy movie. What are like? I, I th honestly, I don't love Juliette Lewis in this movie that much. Um, 
I think ending the movie on like her narration and starting it with that sort of frame narration is kind of weak and a, like a bad way to start and end a movie. Kind of lazy, if you ask me. Um, I don't yeah. know. I, I didn't like that. You know what, Mitch? I wholeheartedly agree with you halfway. Um, I also did not like the starting the narration and starting the movie with Juliette Lewis's mm-hmm. narration. Um, I didn't dislike it when it was happening because I hadn't seen the movie yet. As far as, far as I was concerned, this was very fitting for the movie. Mm-hmm. But when it comes back around again and she closes out the movie, um, I thought I thought the same thing as you. I thought it was very lazy. I thought it was... Um, cheesy cliche mm-hmm. um and just and also undeserving like i said that the movie ends up in the third act i feel like it's very paint by numbers but um and and so i would also say that the third act is cliche but the cliche of the outro narration feels like it was taken from a different cliched movie and slotted mm-hmm. into this one i didn't think it fit at all but i will differ from you in that i loved juliette lewis's performance in this movie she was actually my favorite character and my favorite performance in the entire movie um i was so captivated by her i think the whole cast is charismatic that's Mm -hmm. it's a really cool i don't know how they did it with this movie um i don't know who to give the credit to but all the characters all the actors even even the small parts um they they have this charisma to them every actor you mentioned it's just like the the way they deliver lines they kind of stick in your head and Mm. um and they also just have this physicality to them the private eye you know with his pepto-bismol he just has this 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 weight about him and i don't mean that in a literal sense like i mean mean it in that like he just like he demands your attention he has his presence um and so i was really amazed by that and i think juliette lewis has it in spades i think her Mm. character is actually to me the most interesting in terms of the depth there i think the the scene maybe my favorite scene in the movie is the scene where my my two favorite actors in this movie robert de niro and juliette lewis are just having a conversation in the theater oh god Um, that's such a creepy scene yeah definitely my favorite scene in the movie um she thinks that he is her drama teacher Mm -hmm. um and so she's she shows up to class but what she doesn't know is that he has lured her there knowing that she is the the daughter of of um the character he is trying to get revenge on and it's just this really creepy conversation where he knows a lot of things that she doesn't and he's using that to his advantage but also he's he's intentionally being very suave and and trying to get her affection and and she's like a a 15 year old girl in this movie she's sort of lost um yeah and uh you know, her, her parents aren't in the greatest relationship right now. I got the impression that she doesn't have many friends. And um, she's she had this really interesting, like childlike quality to her that mm-hmm. um, I wouldn't associate with a 15 year old. Like now I, I would my idea of a 15 year old in that situation is like they're going to catch on quick and they're going to bolt out of there. But that yeah. is I think that's that's an incorrect um, assumption for me to have watching her play through this character yeah. um, and this scene. I, I totally believe that he would be able to take advantage of her in that way. And the scene and would he did. end up unfolding the way it does. 
And he, oh, he does. And I read that this whole scene um, was actually at, like ad-libbed. Like that was the first take and they were just told to go. And um, I think, I, I feel like I can tell. I, I feel like they feel very real. Um, well, the lines are kind of hanging on the air like they're they're it's like they both don't know what they're going to do or say next it's oh. it's, it's that scene is is horrifying um i think i i wrote like and also like the way in which that he does that in the staging and uh mm-hmm. i think his his the sort of disguise he puts on with that goofy polo and lacoste cardigan as a drama teacher <laughs> i don't know it's just yeah really stilted and awkward and it's done with this sort of sense of poetic realism the whole movie has that sort of vibe permeating where there's like this sort of gingerbread house in on like the stage as like a set and he makes allusions to the big bad wolf and all these sort of fairy tale stories and i think like her character like a lot of the movie is just fundamentally about like the loss of innocence um and i think uh, that scene is sort of like where it really starts. Oh, yeah. And I don't know if they were told to hit plot points at, at a certain point or what, but the way that information is revealed in that scene is is astounding. So she thinks that he is her drama teacher. And then through mm. the conversation, he, she realizes that he isn't. And the way the realization dawns on her, you can see it in her face. And and she asks him and, and uh, you know, he admits it to her that he is not, her drama teacher but that's not the end of the scene it keeps going and even after she learns this information he is still making her like cover her face because she's all shy and like embarrassed because he's being mm-hmm. affectionate towards her and they and then he, he ends up putting his fingers in her mouth um yeah, and she's just, and she's reciprocating um there's a sense of dread like just seeing uh, how naive she is and, absolutely and how he's taking advantage of her absolutely yeah and and he kisses her and it is just absolutely vile but through the acting and through uh, you know i don't i guess the dialogue i don't know if i should call it writing so i don't know what writing mm. was done here but uh and, and of course the editing we don't know what was cut this whole scene is just like I think expert character study. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that Juliette Lewis carries on that character all throughout the movie, even in the scenes that um, are, I guess, written, you know, if, if yeah. that was the ad lib scene and, and the others aren't, I, I just mean that she still feels like the same character and she's still able to deliver all her lines in the movie um, in this way that feels like the character. Like she has like these little stutters and she kind of cocks her head and um, she'll, she'll do the thing you just said where like, she'll say a line and you're not sure if the line is over. It seems like it shouldn't be. And you're waiting for her to say something else, but she doesn't say anything else because that's sort of how people talk. You know, everything isn't a a perfectly written line and deliveries aren't always final. You know, sometimes someone is in the middle of a sentence and, and, and then they just sort of taper off. And she does that all throughout. She does it again really greatly when um, mm. Max shows up at the house at the end of the movie and and she goes and answers the door with her mom. And so I was just totally interested in her. And so coming back around in a very long-winded way, the reason that I did not like her narration at the beginning and end was I thought 
the movie wasn't actually about her as much as I would have liked it to be. Um, and so I found it kind of cheap that you're starting the movie with her and you're ending the movie with her, but in between, you're not actually giving as much of the focus to her as the beginning and end of the movie um, yeah. seems to signify. Like she she basically disappears with Jessica Lang for a good chunk of the third act. They fall overboard and um, and then at the end they just wash up on shore and they're both okay and then we're going to give her narration to talk about like what this meant to her and her family. I thought it was pretty like hackneyed and, yeah, and unfortunate. Of- Sort of a slapdash ending for what otherwise has, like, I think really, um, like a movie that goes to like dark emotions. And I, I just think that it's just like, um, I don't know. It, it feels like if you're writing an article and then you end your story with a quote, like it's just like, it's, yes. it's, it's lazy news writing if you do that. It's, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's just, I, I, I don't know why Martin Scorsese did that. Um, one of the things that I mentioned when we were talking about that scene with like the, the gingerbread house on the, you know, big bad wolves and the sort of poetic, uh, staging and realism that permeates this film. I think that that's especially prevalent in like the earlier scenes as well, like in the buildup as like with like the growing intensity, um, everything is like immaculately, uh, realized in, in, in perfect vignettes that are, that, that are, um, both like subtle, but also like, um, cause like he's, he's showing you instead of telling you necessarily like what you need to see. And I think also like showing like the values of the film and the characters and talking about like the values of the culture that they live in just with like, I think embellishing like the scenery, like for example, like the, the 4th of July, um, fair where Nick Nolte, uh, slugs Robert De Niro in the crowd. Right. There's almost like this hellish sense of Americana and like that sort of like the kind of morality that, that, um, and like uh, exceptionalism that, that comes with that, like in the parade and everyone's having a great time, except for this family that's being terrorized. And like that act of juxtaposition creates a kind of, um, poetic realism. There's so many other examples like formally that, that this does where, where, um, you know, the, the set piece, I think, tells you so much about what the characters are, are feeling and like the vibes and what like the overall messaging uh, of the scenes are. I think like the, 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 the stage scene does that the parade scene does that. I think the scene where um, Katie's sitting outside and there's like the fireworks in the backyard and he's pretty much as obtrusive as those fireworks are sitting in the backyard gawking like he's as unwelcome as they are. Um Right, but but there's nothing you can do about it, right? Yeah. There's there's that point where uh, it gets brought up to law enforcement, and he says, "Well, he, he was sitting on your wall. There's nothing we can really do. That's yeah. not even trespassing." He's and so it is welcome. sort of like fireworks. Like, what are you going to do? Yeah. Tell them to stop shooting fireworks? Mitchum says he's about as unwelcome around here as a case of yellow fever. Um, nice, right? So, or I think, for example, the scene where he unveils the tattoos and takes off his shirt behind the two way mirror. There's there's also that sort of ele- element of like Hitchcock voyeurism at work there. Um, uh, And again, like a lot of Hitchcock's movies, it's about like two strong male characters in the game of cat and mouse. And yeah, um, so yeah, there's, there's just this, this um, almost like fanciful um, sense of dread that, that 
sinks into the realism that I think is really compelling. Um, and I think it's one of the strong points of this, of this movie. Absolutely. I, I think the, the camera work and the editing um, complements that as well. Like I think the use of split diopter shots, um, do you know, do you know what a split diopter is? I do. Yeah. And I remember noticing some, do yeah. Tell, tell people what it is though, in case. So it, it's, it's like a camera technique where you essentially sort of like, it almost looks as though you splice together two shots, but it's, it's where you have like one part of it is sort of like close up and then you have another part to the side that's, um, um, also like in focus, but like further away. And it creates this sort of like weird sense of depth um, and, and duality on both sides of the frame with one thing sort of uh, up close and another thing far away, but both existing on the same plane. I don't know if that's a great description. Brian De Palma was known for them. Uh, Martin Scorsese used them uh, quite a lot. But I feel like in the case of, of the marriage between uh, Jessica Lange and Nick Nolte, they're used extensively uh, to sort of show the rift between them that, and and the distance, the increasing distance between them as well, and the lack of trust. Yeah, that, that's that's definitely like one of the things. I think the the editing is also really bold and telling. Like, I love the the use of jump cuts. Uh, like, for example, where the secretary says, "It's urgent. Your wife's on the line." And then it just cuts directly to him driving, and they find that that he killed the dog, which is the cardinal oh, rule that yeah. you should you should never do in a movie. They did that in the '60s one too. <laughs> but, oh, that well, that's how you know it's a real horror movie. Yeah, when they killed the dog, which and Jessica Lange's monologue after they killed the dog, where she's like, "Oh, he was he had the strangest look in his eyes, and he started he was confused, and he started winding down like an old clock." Like I don't know, I think like that scene is really well done, and. I don't know. The killing of the dog is kind of like the canary in the coal mine in a movie. It's a harbinger of the things to come. I think Funny Games did that too. Yeah, a lot of a lot of movies do that, and that's yeah. sort of what I'm saying here is that I'm, I'm I was surprised that this movie does all those beats at its heart. It is like a pulpy trash thriller that yeah. you've likely seen a bunch of times, but it's it's told uh, very well. You know, if you're if you're reaching for a pulpy trash thriller, I'd say you know seven seven times out of ten you're probably going to get one that is not as well made as this one. Oh yeah you're not going to get like this is a like a, a work of like an, of a master um for sure yeah and that's that's really cool to see and it i guess it's sort of you know i gotta admit where some of the cognitive dissonance is coming in for me is because this is a, a really well told pulpy trash thriller yeah but at the same time, it ends up just being a pulpy trash thriller. You know, it has a bit more meat on the bones than a really terrible mm. pulp movie, you know, that is simply it doesn't have any of these thematic elements we're talking about. It doesn't have um, the depth of the characters in scenes uh, like we, like we've mentioned but I think just on paper, you know, if you, if you write this movie down um, in terms of the plot points, it ends up being fairly standard. And I know that a movie isn't just what it is on paper. You know, that's what makes a movie a, the most unique medium of all is that it's all these things coming together, editing and music. And that's why movies are such a unique art form. But I think that um, the the adeptness of those aspects in this movie are subtle enough mm -hmm. that um, it still draws attention 
to the plot and the fact that you've seen this before you know all all the things you said about really cool stuff in this movie um i did i didn't even catch on to all of it and some of some of the other stuff i did catch on to and i really liked but this movie is not you know a super flashy um highly stylized film that some of these other big name Mm -hmm. directors are known for and so it's 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 very interesting to see a huge director do a movie like this yeah i think like martin scorsese's definitely made a few sort of pulpier works i think like shutter island for example is uh based off of like shot corridor by by sam fuller uh who was like the king of pulp um but I think by and large, it, it, it is in a lot of ways like uh, a telling of his range as a, as a director and sort of like the mastery over the medium um, in the sense that he can do like a sort of like a, a pulpy, exploitative uh, movie like this. And then he can also like turn around a couple of years later and make The Age of Innocence, which is like a very sophisticated period piece in like 1880s New York with Daniel Day-Lewis and um, so, or he makes Kundun about like the biopic about the Dalai Lama or biopic about uh, Howard Hughes, right? He's he, Or he makes Silence. Um, just a, tr- a tremendous range and I think that this movie is like obviously I don't think it's his best but I think it's a really interesting work in his um, filmography and a really capable thriller. Um, yeah. What else did I want to talk about? There's there's lots of other things I want to say. How are you doing for for talking points? Oh, I've I've got plenty. I'm ready to go. You Good. go ahead and bring something up. Good. Um, one of the things I wanted to talk about was I guess, I guess like the violence in this movie because it was like a starkly like horrifying violent movie. Um, Steven Spielberg was actually originally set to direct this movie and he helped sort of develop it and get the the wheels rolling and he had some influence in the pre-production. Um, but he went to do, I guess, I think he did Schindler's List instead. I'm not sure. Um, but uh, the violence, yeah, he, he found the film too violent and so he, he backed out. Um, Dang, man. First, Spielberg ruined Gremlins. He didn't let them kill the dog in Gremlins. Uh, yeah. He was a producer on that movie. Didn't let them kill the dog. Didn't let them kill the mom. Spielberg, come on. Yeah, yeah. Let it happen. Yeah, okay. I'm looking at Wikipedia and it said he traded it to get back to Schindler's List. So he found Cape Fear too violent, but then he made Schindler's List, which is like the most depressing movie ever, but I guess an important <laughs> movie to him given his, you know, his heritage. But yeah, uh, so the violence in this movie definitely, I think, caught a, a lot of critics off guard and it is a really violent movie. Uh, you don't expect like Martin Scorsese makes violent movies, but um, I don't, I think it like it, the, the severity of it caught a lot of people off guard. Like the one scene with the, the court clerk where mm-hmm. he, he gets her drunk and he's joking. And there's just this, again, another scene that's dripping with this sense of dread and, and, and uh, tragic irony and dramatic irony where we know that this guy's a fucking monster and he, he's got a bone to pick with Nick Nolte and he's going to use her to get at, uh, at uh, Nick Nolte's character, right? And then when he finally does, it's such a startling sort of eruption of violence when he, he bites off a piece of her chin and just starts wailing on her. And it, it's, it's a horrifying scene of of um just sexual violence it's it's uh yeah appalling and, and this this film is is just full with like eruptions of violence that are sometimes unpredicted even though that the whole movie telegraphs that it's coming like when it finally happens it's startling yes and i think that is um 
that's a great way to sum up just the the approach this movie has to a lot of um not just its violence but just like it's it's big character reveals. I think what happens in that sexual assault scene where he he bites the clerk is very similar to the theater scene. Like you said, they they both have dread in them. And yeah. if the if you know if the theater scene that also culminates in sexual violence with him putting his fingers in the mouth of a fifteen year old girl and kissing her. Yeah. Um, the, the and use, wo- usury too, I think. But c- keep going. Oh like he, yeah, how he uses people to get closer to a- absolutely, yeah. And so the the scene where he um he's with this court clerk and he's she's drunk and he's again using his charm um and he gets her into bed and he he handcuffs her. You know, she's lying she's lying prone on her stomach and he handcuffs her and. Also similar to the theater scene, this is the point where uh, I think many viewers, and I even had um, this question in my head, many viewers might think, why is she letting this happen? This dude is clearly sinister. Well, she's he's handcuffing me right now. She's she's very drunk and she's laughing. But, you know, you might think this dude, he's, his tone has changed. He's handcuffing you. Things have gone too far and you're still okay with it. But there's I that think comic again, irony that's like, yes. It, it, there's a a streak of like comedy that she's saying, and the lines she's saying, like I wasn't laughing at them, but she's laughing, and you you know what's coming. I don't mean to I don't mean to to roll over you. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. You're you're totally right, and I just think. It, it, it is so realistic the way this pe- this guy takes advantage of people and um, this movie in in the character interactions it it often plays with um, the ambiguity of people and their intentions mm-hmm. and uh the the mind's way of often thinking that danger isn't going to happen to them that people aren't capable Definitely. of such violence and such evil and so i think the choice for this uh this character to be laughing while while she's being handcuffed and while he's talking very aggressively um and not not even in a sexual way i mean like he's basically straight up saying like uh I'm not I'm not here to just have aggressive sex with you. I am here to to hurt you, get revenge on you. And she's still laughing right up until the moment where he he bites her cheek. And I yeah. actually think the way it's played is is very realistic and very horrifying and um also very um I kind of want to say rewatchable just in the case that like that interaction is still lingering in my head. And that's that's what separates this movie from seven out of ten trash erotic tinged thrillers is Mm. that it's not as simple as the moment just happening where the killer goes after um, the people closest to the person he wants to get revenge on. He, you know, um, on paper, he he just goes up to them and kills them. But in this movie, the interactions are actually very nuanced and uh, worth examining. And so yeah. I think that does go a long way in, in think, those earlier scenes. Yeah, I think the other coin of like that sort of interaction and sort of the characters is is also the aftermath of the scene in which we just described, where Nolte goes to the to the bedside of of um, that character when she's recovering in hospital, and he he goes. I think partially because he feels um, guilty, um, but also because 
I think he wants to uh, use this sort of um, incident to kind of like put Katie away for good. And so much of this movie, like we were talking about, is about sort of the the how the slow workings of like the legal system often, you know fail like when a when a, a situation is unfolding or or a lot of it's about like the the miscarriages of the legal system right and uh like her character being a lawyer she doesn't want to testify or she doesn't want to explain why she was drunk or she doesn't want to bring him uh nolte into into this and and that particular scene i think is one of the most heartbreaking scenes in the movie where she's like i guess i wanted to show you like i i really showed i guess i really showed you she cries like repeatedly and i think that that is like one of the hardest scenes to watch um brutally like tragic uh just seeing how uh de niro's character like utterly destroyed this human being um and used her just just to get closer to Nick Nolte's character it's uh like her character is is tragic and i think yeah like i, I totally get why she wouldn't want to testify and why so many women don't um, exactly yeah uh, I, I think that that scene um is a great uh, pointed but subtle um, maybe not, maybe not so subtle, but it's quick. It's not with the, it's, you know, it's, it's one scene in the movie it, and it's a mm. great pointed damnation yeah. of the legal system. And and how it sort of handles crimes of, of a sexual nature with, with testimony, right? Like, um, like so many people, I think, especially during like the nineties in this period didn't come forward because to, to accuse people, people still don't do that today because of how, the way the legal the legal system treats crimes of a sexual nature where you have to um, potentially expose yourself to, to ridicule and to uh, public opinion. And uh, it's just such a tragic scene um, and poignant. I'm with you. Um, I, I absolutely love that aspect of the movie and thank you for reminding me of it. I had, I had actually thought about that or I, I had forgot about that in, after the movie was all said and done because it mm. ends in such a bombastic fashion. Um, but that does make me want to bring up um, the more, I guess, uh, um, the more prominent aspect of the movie in, in regards to the legal commentary. And I mm. think this was my big hang up with the movie when I was giving my introductory thoughts and I said that um, I don't think it is enough to hang the moral dilemma um, of the movie on this one point and I want to hear your thoughts about it so um on what we were point oh sorry yeah yeah so uh we were talking about how um uh, Sam, the lawyer character, is uh, not a great dude, and he has hidden some documents that might have helped Max out in his case. And so, mm-hmm. if not for Sam, Max might not have gone to jail for as long. He might not have gone to jail at all. And what that point is, they say it very explicitly at the beginning of the movie. It's not a it's not a big reveal, um, but it is brought up many times from that point on. Um, the The point is that he hid. Um, I think I don't, is it he, he evidence hid, or he, just yes, testimony? He hid testimony that that testimony. suggested that the sixteen-year-old girl that he I guess committed statutory rape or rape, um, 
upon like there was testimony that came forward that she was like promiscuous or something or you know right yeah that's it that's what they say is she, is she that's, was that's, promiscuous. That's, the, that's the phrasing that they use yeah yeah and mine. uh and so that is what max is really upset about that's why he has the vendetta and he, and he says this to sam later on that you know he didn't he didn't do his job as his defense attorney in bringing all the evidence to the table mm-hmm. um and i think uh basing a movie on what the job of a defense attorney is what their moral and legal obligation is i think that's very interesting Mm -hmm. because defense attorneys have a very uh fascinating job you know you've got to often defend people who 99 out of 100 people are going to condemn immediately because of the facts of the case you know if it's if it's uh, we have evidence, we have video evidence that someone uh, murdered someone else in broad daylight on the sidewalk. Uh, you still need a defense attorney to defend that person to ensure that due process has been made in sending this person to prison. Mm-hmm. Everyone deserves the chance to a fair trial. And so I think that aspect is very interesting um, and, and worthwhile. But I think my birds are very vocal about this topic. I That's apologize. Right. No worries. Um, Even for Corey, he's got, he's got to worry about it. <laughs> yeah, we got a Corey, Corey, I think has a bird filter. He can apply to this. Um, but for the point to just be that he hid documentation that he was promis that the, the teenage girl was promiscuous mm-hmm. feels fairly slight to me and i'm not sure i agree if that's the point that the movie is making i didn't get the impression that that was the point i thought that the movie was um was trying to bolster itself by the idea of the the um very clear moral ambiguity uh perhaps in the same way you know that that he is emotionally cheating on his wife which we brought up earlier Mm -hmm. it's another aspect of that but i feel that this one is is much more cut and dry that um that this bit of evidence is not pertinent to the trial would not Mm -hmm. have got him off the hook um it's uh i there there like there's a law in 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 um that i think would have been passed at this time that though a defense attorney is obligated to bring everything to the table that they can to give a clear picture you don't have to bring that material if it um is needlessly damaging to the victim yeah. of, of the case you know i'm probably law is insane and i i have absolutely no expertise and so that might not be entirely correct but the the point is that to me it just it doesn't feel like enough for me mm-hmm. to be invested or really have myself thinking about the complexities of this character to me right. it's like it, it might as well not even be there it might as well be that he is just unhinged and upset that he went to jail while uh this dude was his defense attorney right. and he didn't want to go to jail and so i'm just not clear what the movie is saying about that if it is that um 
indeed Sam uh, should have brought this material up, then I am sort of confused. And so I don't, I don't know if it. I don't. I don't know yeah. if it. If it. I don't know if it really matters whether he did or didn't, because either way you cut it, it's statutory rape. Um, but what I, what I like, I do think the movie is about. It, it's about the obsession that like and of hate that can kind of uh brew inside of people and what happens to you if you are you know uh if you believe that you're wrongfully incarcerated and you you sit inside and you you count off the days and you you think oh he'll rue the day that he did this to me it's about it's about that sort of um really hateful emotion that i think can take root and sort of blind people and drive people to do horrible monstrous things in which they see themselves as victims. Um, uh, and they retaliate to a degree that's like to an unheard of height. Right. Like I think the movie is about, is about like whether or not what he did was right or wrong or would have made a difference. I don't think really matters. I think it might make a difference in the mind of Max Katie uh, within the eyes of the law. I'm not really sure if it would have, but Katie thinks that he's owed something and that sort of seed is planted, that seed of violent obsession and, and it blossoms into like a really hateful orchid. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, that, that's a good way to put it. And I think that's fair. And I think um, if that's what uh, can be concluded, and I think, I think I'm, I'm on the path of concluding the same thing as you, because I agree that it ends up feeling kind of inconsequential. If that's the case, then that's sort of one of the things that keeps this movie from being uh, incredible to me and just mm. ends up making it a more standard revenge fair that so- he that we have this revenge inspiration that doesn't actually mean all that much. And so it's what just would to you, get the ball rolling. What would you have done? I, I guess like, what were you hoping for? Like, like what's missing? I think what would have helped me, um, is I'll go to the, to an extreme that I, that I, I think I would have preferred, I think. And um, the movie didn't have to go to this extreme. I think it is more interesting that um, we're dealing not in black and whites with the promiscuity angle. And so I'm going to go like all the way to white. But um, Mm -hmm. I think a better screenwriter, you know, would be able to come up with just like a a darker shade of gray that that would fit this better. But I would be interested... um, to see a movie and this would be a totally different movie in fact now that i'm thinking about it but just the idea that he went to prison and he is not guilty he that he didn't do this ah. thing and uh like, sort of a count of monte cristo type thing. yeah yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, he did not do this thing and so he spent 14 years in there and it has turned him uh the the jealousy and the the anger has brewed and he's read books about mm. how he has been wronged and deserves a better life and he comes out and I'm, I'm not sure if that's that might be unrealistic but um and this movie does do a good job as i've said yeah. in some examples of realism but also i think that um it does it also has a fair amount of unrealistic uh mm. uh cliched stuff and so if we're just going for a pulp thriller um that has a bit of weight to the characters i would have preferred that than i would introducing this small thing that 
initially seems more significant Mm -hmm. than it ends up being. I thought that there was going to be a further reveal about the promiscuity that that um, there's something else that is unsaid. And then when that is unsaid or when that is said in the third act, I'm like, oh, that's what's going on. Right. And an example of this that I'll that I'll throw out quick and then I want to hear what you think is um, the original Nightmare on Elm Street, Freddy Krueger. Uh He is killed by the neighborhood parents for being a child killer. And uh, mm. he comes back and he uh, gets revenge by killing the the children of the parents who killed him. Mm. That is very clear morally. Um, I, I know the evil guy and I know what he's doing is evil. So I don't necessarily need... In, in a movie to have an evil guy who's not, who uh, is is sympathetic. I'm not asking for that mm. because Nightmare on Elm Street to me is a 10 out of 10. And why that movie is a 10 out of 10 is because of the presentation and the filmmaking and the ideas, you know, that Freddy Krueger is coming at people in dreams and the way that that is communicated in film. So even though it is a typical revenge story, um, there's all this other dressing on it that makes it um, more unique. But mm-hmm. in the 2010 Nightmare on Elm Street movie, it's a remake. Corey and I covered it way early on in the in the in the podcast. For my time, that's right. Um, and I don't know if you know this, Mitch, but in the 2010 version, the original plan was to have Freddy not guilty, and the mm. parents thought that he had in the, in this case it was um molested their children right they, they thought that and they formed a mob and killed him and there's this uh great gr- super well acted flashback scene where jackie Ear- earl haley who plays freddie he's he's chased into uh, a warehouse with uh these parents who have you know pitchforks and torches or whatever and he's screaming that i didn't do it um and the kids who are now teens, they discover this and they're like, oh, our parents, uh, he wasn't even guilty. Our parents did this and now the revenge is happening because of what they did. And I think that That's is... an interesting conceit. Like, to, really know. interesting. Um, and then, uh, spoilers for Nightmare on Elm Street, they backtrack. It turns out that he actually did do the things... Um, uh, Freddie was guilty, and so he is. He, so he is just an evil dude. So I say Maybe in that, yeah. yeah, right. I say in that in that podcast episode that oh, I wish that they made Freddie innocent yeah. because, to, to be frank, the filmmaking in the 2010 version is so uh, is madly inferior to yeah. the 80s version. And so, if you're going to make a version that is inferior in terms of filmmaking. I think the plotting, the writing there would have made it much more significant. And so in this case of Cape Fear, where I think that though there are a lot of interesting touches, um, I think it is ends up being more standard in plotting than I would Mm. like. And then uh, the little bit of extra there with the promiscuity doesn't end up being all that extra to me. And so I ended up leaving a bit deflated. Yeah. So it's not as morally gray as you would have liked. It's a bit clear cut. And and as as, uh, Kursik starts building a catalog, we find that he snapped the man's neck and bit his tongue off in jail. And um, you find like these little facts about him trickle out that um, uh, 
Well, I think it's it's kind of like always known that he's a bad guy. I think if it were a count of Monte Cristo sort of situation, I think it would be really muddied and you wouldn't have anybody to cheer for, which I don't I don't think it would work for it might work, but I, I don't think it would work as as I think it might be less efficient than what we're dealing with here. Um, mm-hmm. um but I again I wouldn't I wouldn't mind seeing that movie or that take. Um uh- you know, you know what I wish they did then if they went all that way, then I would bring my other qualm with the movie in that it needs more of the Juliette Lewis character in order to mm. earn those beginning and ending moments. And I think you make her the, the sympathetic, um, if not lead, then more of a co-lead who does a bit more in the yeah. third act. And if she's the person you relate to, she's done no wrong at all. Who, like the children in Nightmare on Elm Street, are destroyed by the misdoings of their parents. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. That could be an interesting take. I think in a way she still is that in this movie. Um, well, the whole family is destroyed by, I guess, the father's um, sort of like absent-minded, like freewheeling, lawyery stuff. Slippery Sam, Jessica Lang calls him. Um, <laughs> That's funny because there's that moment where he slips in the blood right after he finds uh, Homie murdered yeah. by the piano wire. He's I, like, it's the piano wire. And then he falls in blood. <laughs> can we talk about that set piece for a minute? Because I, yeah. really, I really enjoy that movie and and like the build up to it and the suspense. It all feels very Hitchcockian as they're sort of trying to set this trap for Katie and see if he takes the bait. And they go to the airport and try and pull this, you know, this fast one on them. That scene is brilliant, and um, Joe Don Baker has a line uh, while they're preparing where he says, "The South has a fine tradition of savoring fear," and I think that like that is in a lot of ways like what this movie is about, especially when you think about sort of like the Southern context and the setting. There is a streak of sort of a, a Southern Gothic um, style through this movie, and also like how how people. Um, savor fear and what sort of uh trauma can do to them i think the, like a lot of the, those those questions um and like i think fear as a fear as a motivator or um fear as as uh yeah fear as a motivator i'll i'll, I'll leave it there but i thought that 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 line was extremely telling with like the the values of of this movie um especially with like the southern context but uh furthermore that particular sequence, the way that they're they're filming the rope, set it up with the Bernard Herman strings, and um, it just conveys like a like a sense of suspense that's really good. I think that that particular set piece is the high point of the movie um, for me. Um, I think after that, I'm I think that that is more dramatically interesting and consequential than the houseboat finale because that's a bit too showy for me i i didn't really care for that as much although i do think it's immensely satisfying where he gets hit with like that cigarette lighter and lit on fire and like burned with a boiling water are you offering me something hot um (laughs) but but like the scene where he spins around and reveals that he's like killed um i guess like the maid and then he garrots um Joe Don Baker is just so fucked up and like so like excessively violent. I'm I have like an immediate sort of neck jerk cringe reaction to maybe not cringe is the right word, but I'm very squeamish about like 
garrote scenes in movies, especially with like mm. a piano wire where you can potentially decapitate somebody as well. And that's, oh. pretty, that's pretty much what he does here. Uh, there's a Dario oh, Argento yeah. movie. I forget the name. I think it's called Trauma. I don't remember the de- what, what it's called, but it's it's about like this guy who de- invents a device that decapitates people like that. It's so fucked. Mitch, um, have you seen a uh, ghost ship from the early 2000s? I've seen. I know, the 80- I know you've I've seen, seen the, an 80s ghost ship. I've seen the 80s ghost ship. I haven't seen that one. Yeah, and Corey told me that the early 2000s one isn't a remake, that it's unrelated, but that's I might have to fact check him on that. I don't I know love, if that's I true. I love like, ghost ships and maritime mysteries, though. I'm all about sure. that shit. Um, um, ghost ship from the early 2000s, it has a scene that often ranks high on... on um, online lists of either openings in horror movies the greatest or the greatest kills in horror movies um it has this incredible scene that i won't spoil for you in case we ever do we decide should, that the movies it, relate like to, yeah. right? uh but it, it involves uh garroting and it is it is incredible another one is audition from 2000 I've seen audition is so fucked up yeah right I, I, one of my buddies was coming over and I was watching Audition and he was like, oh, yeah, come over and have a beer with you, whatever. And I'm like, OK, like I started this movie like you're going to be coming in like in the last bit. I heard it's pretty fucked up. Oh. And, he, and he comes in in the last half hour and he's yeah. like, what the fuck is this? Like, <laughs> yeah, just- dude, if, if the last half hour of Cape Fear is like your standard uh, 90s big set piece kind of action thriller then the ending of audition is just like a descent into uh bloody uh avant-garde madness like, it is it is insane yeah that's it's crazy um so violent uh, what? uh yeah well l- let me just I'll, I'll i'll respond to what you said there that huh. uh i i agree with you that the piano wire violence is really affecting mm-hmm. and i think the the trick that he uses there to um figure out when they're going to be home after they've flown away mm. so we can get into the house i i love that scene of manipulation he's such a um, manipulator yeah yeah and and i agree with you that i think it is more effective and creepy than the houseboat stuff even yeah. though when you were talking earlier about how there are some cool scenes that that mimic what's happening tonally you know like the the emptiness of the theater room um and uh what was the other big one you said oh the fourth of july i love that point you made that happens again with the houseboat because it's like dark and turbulent and and, and turbulent and the religious allegory in the ending too i think where he's yeah yeah and so that that's there it's i think a bit maybe a bit too obvious for for my taste uh in this moment, I mean, Lord knows I love I love obvious um, symbolism in, in other movies. But like the July 4th thing, when you said that, I was like, oh, damn, I didn't even think about that. That's sick. But the houseboat thing sort of to me feels like um, they had to set the climax in a unique place in order mm. to like make it a, a blockbuster. The original is also about the houseboat ending as well. Interesting. Okay, that, that that's very cool. Um, and I also agree with you that the fire thing is wicked. Um, when he gets set on fire, yeah. and then and then it's the classic he's, he's horror movie and thing. Hollering. Yeah, it's, it's the satisfying. classic horror movie thing where he comes back. That he's not dead yet. He comes yeah. back, and now he's 
uh, disfigured yeah. and even more horrific. And I, yeah. I love that trope. And he, the makeup there looks great. He kind of looks like Jeff Goldblum in The Fly. Like yeah. When, when Jeff Goldblum is kind of like at a six out or maybe a seven out of 10 in his fly development. Yeah. It looks really I cool. Think, I think it also plays into sort of like the religious, almost like supernatural quality of this bad guy. Like he's the devil. Like you can't burn him. You can't get him with boiling water. You can't, he cannot be killed. He's a, he's immune to strychnine. He'll hold a flare and he won't burn. Like he's, He's this like um, implacable foe. I don't know if that's the right word. Um, sounded convincing to me. Thanks, man. Um, <laughs> but but yeah, like it, it's it's like that is all is all really good. I think. And then like finally like the the Cain and Abel bit where he where Nick Nolte and they're hitting each other with rocks and then he falls back into the sea and as that's happening he shouts i am like god and god is like me i am as large as god and he is as small as i he cannot be above me nor i beneath him right like that's that's quoting silesius i'm just pulling that from wikipedia right now but like um, nice. religious religious allegory is rife in, in that sort of like ending and i think that like that bit with the rocks and like a lot of martin scorsese's movies are about people sort of losing their soul or their morality. And I think by the end, Nick Nolte has um, been driven to like, to his, um, you know, to the very end of like what he's capable of doing uh, in, in that scene. I think also another sort of corruption of his character is when he agrees with Joe Don Baker to get two, two pieces of pipe and a bicycle chain, like uh, where they, <laughs> where they go and like try and do a hospital job on Katie. That scene is fucking incredible. What did you think of it? Remind me more of what that is. So that's, that's the bit where, where, uh, Nolte kind of gets the idea from Robert Mitchum's character that he's if he wants to really pull a fast one on this guy, he also gets it from Joe Don Baker's character where he implies that like he'll send some guys that he knows to do a hospital job on him, oh. and, and though and he's you're going to be hurting like you wouldn't believe, and he's got the he's, yeah. wearing, he's wearing a wire, and then um, <laughs> they uh, these these three guys corner Katie in a parking lot with two pieces of pipe and a bicycle chain, and I I feel like using a bicycle chain as a weapon is just such like a visceral sort of um, rough thing. I mean, like lots of gangs do do that. And I, I think of like the warriors or something where you see shit like that. Mm. Um, but that scene is incredible how he just like overtakes those three men. And it, again, it sort of speaks to that supernatural kind of like hate emanating through characters through, through, through Katie's character. It's, it's almost as though that he's imbued with like demonic powers to overcome these men. And, and <laughs> Yeah, dude, that's so interesting. Interesting, you say that, Mitch. And I'm glad you asked me about this scene. I think I had the same read on the scene you did, but I just came down on at on not liking it. Um, no. In fact, I thought this was um, probably my least favorite scene in the movie. I love both, it. Both in terms of the writing, because um, I thought that it it was maybe a bit early like i thought that sam didn't have enough reason at that point to put this hit on him maybe i was interpreting it that well, they were that they were sending the guys were gonna kill him and, and maybe they were just there to give him a, just a, a roughing up to get him uh, this, ha this happens after like he goes and visits his daughter in school so like i can 
I can understand like the motivation knowing about like his criminal history and like, you know. And that's and that's fair. I guess I was thinking that he didn't know that um the dude kissed his daughter. He, you know, he there's that really cool scene where Sam is saying, you know, did he touch you to Danny? And uh and while he's asking her that, out. he like he like puts her his hand over her mouth, which is, you know, sort of a um a mirroring there of uh, yeah. a similar thing that that Max did, you know, albeit not sexually, but he still he puts his hands on his daughter in a violent way. Mm-hmm. Um, but she and she, but she doesn't say anything, and so he comes away with, okay, something happened. He might have uh, touched her, but I was thinking when he was asking that, like it might have been more like. Uh, um, it sounds stupid now that I'm saying it out loud, but that like Max might have like. Like, like shoved her or something but now i'm thinking the dude has a history of of the having sex, sex with sexual teenage girls violence, right and yeah. so you're you're right that he he probably would have uh made the jump that that even though he wasn't told that max yeah. kissed her um he very well might have so um totally fair point i think i'm with you on that I, now i think it's uh, a tr- go like ahead a, yeah a tremendous like scene with that and how he's how he's going like counselor where right. are you? <laughs> Which is very Warriors, yeah. right? Very Warriors come <laughs> out to play. I've seen my dad do that bit after having like way too many beers. And he's, oh, my, my, my dad gosh. like barely ever drinks, but I've seen him do that once with like with beer bottles on his. He had the like, bottles, and it was well. He loved that movie. So like, oh, my he, dad he, too. He loves that movie. Like came out when he was a, when he was a young buck. So I've seen him do that like after having a few beers, and he, he does the bit perfectly. That's amazing. Um, my dad would also do it. I've never seen him do it all the way full method with the bottles, but yeah. my dad would say it. And I've been waiting for a Warriors remake to come out. The first time I heard about it was in like 2008. It was supposed to happen. And I remember yeah. telling my dad, this is a very integral summer in my life. It was like kind of like the year I was really getting in to movies and keeping up with them. I would have been about 12 years old. So I was yeah. using the internet. And I remember telling my dad, dad, this summer we've got to go see this Warriors remake in theaters and we've got to go see Cabin Fever 2 in theaters because Cabin Fever 2 has finished production and uh, the Warriors remake has never happened. It has not been shot. Um, It's it's been in development hell for over a decade now and Cabin Fever 2 was not theatrically released. It was straight to DVD. So both those threads are still hanging for me, but uh, I'm with you. I love the Warriors and if a remake ever happens, that would be so fun to do on the show. Yeah, man. I like there's my dad was like showing me like old photos of him from like the late seventies or like whenever it came out. I think he graduated like high school around then or he was in high school then. And so like he and all of his friends like dressed up as like the Warriors and oh. it's it, it's such a dope photo. Um, That's so cool that they but, were into it at the time. But yeah, um back on to track about this movie. Um Yeah, the the alley fight. Um uh and how you like the creepiness of him yelling out counselor you're saying counselor <laughs> yeah i i fucking love it and I, I think that it's like the the perfect sort of like eruption of violence and i think like the 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 subsequent events which happen afterwards where Kate, katie's like i've been hard done by by this no good man who's circumvented the law and taken it on his own hands and i'm an innocent man and then they give him the they give katie the restraining order um I think it also again like it's just more layers of like this sort of uh legal system that's that's wrong and I think uh like 
um, Gregory Peck's character in that courtroom scene, and, and Martin Balsam as well as the judge. Martin Balsam's the guy who the Arbogast, the private eye who gets knifed on the stairs in Psycho. Um, oh, nice. Yeah, as the judge, I think like their sort of handling of that scene and and how they the attitude that that they have to one of their own who would dare to go outside of the law. Um, I don't know. I think it's I think it's really sort of. Uh, telling because you see you see the law from so many different perspectives in this movie you see it from like the perspective of somebody who um, has been sexually assaulted who works within the law who wants to like who is afraid to bring their abuser to justice you see it um, like from the perspective of like a lawyer who is like working outside of the law I would say like mostly in the right to defend his family right because nobody else will um yeah, I that sort of subsequent subsequent sequence and uh, Katie's injuries and how he sort of plays up for sympathy and how everybody believes it, but how he's not actually injured at all and he can just take off those those robes, um, and and the sling, um, yeah, is is telling of his supernatural ability, but also more to what we were speaking about with like the legal system being clunky and, and inefficient. Yeah, sure. So um, I agree with you. I like the fallout of that scene. And um, mm-hmm. and now that we've uh, um, you've helped me understand why Sam might have or would have ordered that hit at that time. I think that this might be the one scene in the movie where I actually think it's not the writing that lets mm-hmm. me down, but the filmmaking. Interesting. Um, and there's a split diopter as well, I think, when he's hiding behind the... the that's cool. Yeah, I'm down with that. Yeah, and yeah. And, and, uh, and Rob De Niro is in the background and just like yelling for him. And that's really mm. cool. But I, I thought the fight scene itself, um, I thought it was like shot very comically. Um, it it and, kind of is. <laughs> but also like... And and I guess I, I found that just so so jarring. It's comical and also like hard to follow the action because there's a, a lot of cuts and close ups, and so it's not really clear how he's getting the it, uh, it does getting a bit the of a upper Looney hand. Tunes. It does a bit of like a yeah. Looney Tunes without with like sound effects and almost kind of like reminiscent yep. of like the boxing and raging bull, like. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And, and then he goes in with like the, the the jangling bike chain. Yeah, I see what you mean there. Yeah, and so I guess I would have preferred that scene to be more uh, like the rest of the violence mm-hmm. in the movie, where, that you know actually feels um, um, like it has yeah. serious consequences. And mm-hmm. um, I, I like what you said about how this might be uh, depicting him as this sort of supernatural god or, or, or devil-like figure who is who is able to counter this this gang of dudes um, in sort of an unrealistic fashion. I think that's okay. And so I said earlier that I think we had the same read on that, that I also thought mm-hmm. that that was sort of unrealistic and too overpowered. But the reason I didn't like it, you know, is because of the filmmaking there that made the action unclear. And also because, like, it reminded me of one of our favorite movies, Mitch, Halloween Kills. Ah, Evil Dies Tonight. Evil Dies Tonight, where at the end, the mob comes for Michael Myers, and they're just beating him down to a pulp, and all of a sudden, Michael Myers, the the anti-hero, or perhaps the the total personification of pure evil uh not anti-hero at all he rises up and he gets the upper hand and um one i find it uh just like 
unfortunate writing just in that mm-hmm. it's not really my preference and what, what I want to see in those characters. But I'll put I'll put that aside. This is what the movies are are doing, especially if they're operating on this thematic level like you've talked about. But two, I think both the movies just shoot it in sort of like a a rushed, hard to follow, um, confusing yeah. way where I just wish it the action yeah. felt more impactful and I was able to see I think it's exactly imp- what's happening there. I think it's impactful. I think, I think and part of the reason why it's shot in that way is because what he is doing and the way that he um, counterattacks almost c- confounds the senses. Like how could he mm. possibly have done this? Right. Like, like the way that he wraps the chain around the pipe. And once that happens, the guy with the bike chain is completely fucked and he turns around the bike. Um, <laughs> yeah. I think you might, I think you might prefer the way that this scene is filmed in the original film, which is to say that it's done with mostly a single static shot. And rather than like a parking lot outside of a bar, um, it's done underneath like a, a pier or like a boardwalk. And so like he, he's up against the ocean and there's like these these large wooden posts covered in barnacles and he's trapped and it's like a single shot and he's like a like a trapped animal with the, like the physicality of it. And it's very stark and there's nowhere to run except the ocean uh, wow. as, as these men sort of corner him. And, and it's shot underneath the boardwalk. So it's very shadowy and it's I think it's like in the evening. Um and that is like one of the shots that really stands out in my memory from the original film. Like I don't remember a lot of how it looks, but I remember that scene um, because it's really well done in the original. Cool. That makes me want to check that out. That mm-hmm. sounds really cool. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's one hell of a scene. But I, I see what you mean. Like it's, I I think for me, I I really love that scene, especially like when he gets hit with the bike chain and it like rips open his chest. Like mm-hmm. that's. That is such like a graphic idea, especially I think the fact that it it is a household item um, that like everybody has probably like angrily like fussed with when it falls off their bike. Like, come on, you fucking like thing. And it's covered in bike (laughs) grease and it's probably going to like infect the wound if it were to ever like slash your chest open. Right. Like it is a visceral. The the, the concept of being hit with a bike chain terrifies me. Listeners, right. don't don't get any ideas. Uh, <laughs> do you want to shake me? One true weakness. You want to shake me down for money or anything? You know, you know. Um, <laughs> but yeah, have you have you got much else to say? No, I I think this is this has been great. I think we've got all the main points. I think anything else I bring up would just be to serve the the points I I've already said. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and so uh, I think. Altogether, it's a movie that I do quite like. Um, and after this conversation, I, I, I truly do like it even more. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's one that I would want to pick up. Uh, I would like to watch again um, for the performances more than anything. But yeah. also, I can I can easily see this being a movie that I I grow to like um, even more and, and perhaps like even love all the way, you know, I'm not, not going to say for sure, but there are definitely movies out there that I thought were doing much less than they were actually doing. I thought I knew what they had and, uh, very quickly movies have gone all the way from like a two out of 10 on one watch to me to a 10 out of 10. Like I am a very, I'm very easily influenced and I'm, a very very easily um uh my mind can be changed because i love 
recontextualizing things and stuff like that. And so yeah. uh, I, I really did. I really did like the movie. Um, and I think it, if, if anyone has made it this far and not checked it out, Corey, you included, it's yeah, definitely Corey. worth a watch. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I also like do complete 180 sometimes with movies. But yeah, I think it's I think it's definitely worth a watch as well. If you're like a fan of like Martin Scorsese, if you're, even if you're not a fan of Martin Scorsese's movie, this is kind of like an anti-Scorsese, but it has that sort of technical excellence but with the pulpier, you know, approach. I think if you like like a good thriller, this movie, you can't go wrong. It used to be on Canadian Netflix, not anymore. I don't know. Mm. Can't speak for our American listeners. Probably still is because, you know, they give you everything. But um, yeah. Uh, I think that that concludes it. That's that's uh, that's that's pretty much that's pretty much it. I suppose I could get a VPN and find out, but you know, who knows? Um, <laughs> Stay yeah. tuned for uh, the Power Rangers revisited episode where we see if Mitch does a 180, and maybe I'll do a 180. I'm gonna come away hating it on Watch Two. Mitch is gonna love Power. I don't Rangers think unless you've got a. Unless you've got like a straight jacket and like I don't know, like a like a tranquilizer, there's no way I'm watching it again. I got a bike chain over here, baby. Okay, and then now we're talking. Maybe okay, just like <laughs> I'll do it, but like don't hit me with it. <laughs> wow. Thank you once again for listening to this episode of They Made Another One. You can find us all over the internet on Twitter at They Made Another all one word or on letterbox at tmao you can find episodes on anchor spotify apple google podcast stitcher breaker and everything else as they made another one you can reach us via email at tmao podcast at gmail.com with recommendations for future episodes questions comments anything really our fantastic thumbnail art is done by jade dickinson who you can find on instagram at jade sketches We'll catch you here next time for more TMAO. I love you all. Goodbye. Um, Liam, uh, what the fuck are your plugs? Well, uh, you can find my fucking plugs on Twitter and Letterboxd. My username is Graham the Mallow. All sorts of uh, movie stuff. Not all sorts. I'm actually not that active, but I'm up to date on my Letterboxd diary. So you can see, oh, I wonder if Liam watched a movie today. You'll see it there. And and mm. star ratings for sure. I'm not a wuss. Nice. Nice. Well, I'm I'm actually appalled because I just realized that I did that in the wrong order. So usually I've already left by now. See Yeah, well what would the alternative be? You're gonna leave and then just leave me to wrap things. I mean I'll uh, do Li- it. Liam Lee, would you would you mind asking me for my plugs? Sure. Yeah, Mitch, you got any uh fucking plugs for us? <laughs> Already read them. <laughs> All right, that's it. Goodbye. Very nice. Um, that's you know what? I real I just realized, Mitch. Wonderful mm-hmm. episode. But we might want to, uh, before we stop recording, uh, slot in what we're doing next week. Oh fuck! Right? We should keep this in the cast. How we're just talking about this. <laughs> our, our valiant leader is gone. <laughs> okay uh what so whose pick is it is it yours well you picked this and you started picks and Corey was last so yeah i guess it would be okay okay so okay. maybe you'll have to ask me for my plugs again so yeah well let's uh well let me think where it would go mm.
It, it would go before you start your wrap up. So maybe just say something like, uh, I swear um, we're professionals. You know, just say something like, you know, like you, you just, we did our bike chain joke. That's what happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, you said, you said, I'll, uh, I'll do whatever. Just don't hit me with it. And then, so then you'll go, uh, but Liam, before we get out of here, but Liam, your pick for next but, but Liam, before you hit me with a bicycle chain, <laughs> do you have any plugs? <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> It sounds like you want to get hit by the <laughs> No, no, no. Not the plugs, bitch. You got to ask about the movie next week. Ah, oh, fuck. But Liam, <laughs> before yeah. you hit me with a bicycle chain, what movie okay. are you picking next week? Could you hit me with an excellent film title instead of a bicycle chain? I will. Yeah, if it's <laughs> one or the if it's one or the other, I will begrudgingly choose the movie recommendation. Um, just for the content, you know. So I've decided, Mitch, uh, that, gosh, no, I'm not going to, I was thinking with Corey gone, maybe I can pick a super gnarly movie and Just then he has it. no He'll choice, but, uh, but I think he has no choice regardless. We all signed a contract. Mm. And so I would rather pick a gnarly movie with him on the air so that Corey can be in real time. Like, what is this movie? And, or... I'm not watching that movie and me and Mitch will be like, you're going to watch this movie. Um, so for now I will pick something a bit less gnarly, but equally as interesting. I think we'll have a good time, Mitch. This is, um, a movie that I have been wanting to rewatch for over a decade and a half. And I have come very close over the years, uh, even going so far as to find a terrible stream of it on some bootleg website and then it kept buffering for me this would this would have been five years ago or something and i think about this movie probably once every week and i still have yet to have seen it again since i saw it in 2006 um i'll talk more about that next week but mitch i want to watch the remake of the movie when a stranger calls whoa okay I, that's I, what I want that movie scared the shit out of me when i was a kid uh, i don't know if i saw the remake but i i saw i think i saw the older version but like that con- concept and like be having a babysitter mm-hmm. or whatever that scared the ever-loving shit out of me i'm so fucking down let's do it cool yeah so that's when a stranger calls from 2006 mm-hmm. Corey, mark it down on your calendar and Corey will be back next week we'll all be here um so look forward to that um, uh, so are we actually going to like fix the outro or should I just like leave it? I think I, it'll be a seamless edit. I don't think you have to, unless there's anything about it you want to do differently, but no. I, I don't think it, uh, yeah, I think we're good then. No, I wouldn't change a thing. All right. Fix it in post. Yeah, we'll we'll do it, it live we'll except do, for that part. Fuck it. We'll do it live. Okay. Um, fuck it. We'll do it in post. Okay. Yeah. That's all she all wrote. Right. Um, okay, stop. <laughs>